0: With every story we hear, listen to, read, or tell, we make basic human connections that help define who we are. Welcome to Afterwards Paranormal, the podcast devoted to those stories that tell us who we are when we're in the dark. Listen closely now. The dark is speaking, and the need to be heard never dies.
1: Hello and welcome to Episode 72 of Afterwards Paranormal. I'm your host, Shelby. Do you feel like you're in a rut? Do you need a change in your life? How about a change at the DNA level? That would certainly make things more interesting. It definitely does so for the main character in our story, Fever Dream, by Ray Bradbury. Although there are no earthly creatures, great or small, that actually morph into a completely different species, there are some that go through dramatic changes from baby to adult. Here are a few I found in an article by Dr. Barb Org. The ant lion. In the summertime, homeowners may notice small funnel-shaped pits next to their foundations, usually in dry, fine soil. Often these pits are under the eaves or next to porches, areas that are protected from direct rainfall. Observant homeowners may also notice that as the summertime progresses, the pits become larger in diameter and more widely spaced apart. We had quite a few of these dirt pits in our yard in Utah. I thought sap was dripping from our elm tree until my biologist hubby pointed out the little creature living in them. Hidden under the soil at the bottom of each pit, A predatory immature antlion waits for unsuspecting ants and other small insects to fall into the pit. Compared with other insects, immature antlions are peculiarly adapted for constructing their pits and this predatory lifestyle. They have a broad, flattened body, short legs, best suited for crawling backward, and a flat head with long, sickle-shaped mandibles. The larvae do not resemble the adult antlions, which look like a small damselfly and have a slender body with delicate outstretched wings. These things look like a monster from a sci-fi film. If an antlion larva encounters a small pebble or other object when it is constructing its pit, it will attempt to flick the object out of its pit. If the object is too large to flick, but large enough to move, it may literally be pushed up and out of the pit by the larva. When the pit is completed, the larva lies motionless on the bottom, concealed beneath the sand with only its long, piercing mandibles exposed. When an ant or another small insect accidentally steps inside the rim of the pit, it will slip on the soft sand particles on the side of the pit and fall to the bottom. The unfortunate victim usually becomes impaled by the antline's piercing mandibles. But if it tries to escape, the antline will flick sand and shower the prey. As this storm of loose sand falls on the slope of the pit, it speeds up the treadmill effect. Eventually, the prey tumbles to the bottom toward a waiting antlion. After the prey has been captured, the antlion drags the victim deeper into the sand where it sucks out its body fluids. The antlion then disposes of the carcass by flicking it out of the pit. Well, at least they take out the garbage. As the summer progresses, antlions get larger and construct a larger pit. When several antlions live near each other, they adjust the spacing between the pits so as not to interfere with each other. When the antlion larva grows to its maximum size, it changes into a pupa and then an adult, a life cycle like that of a butterfly. Adults mate and females lay eggs in soft, dry soil that will be suitable for the larva. Antlions are absolutely harmless and cause no damage to flowers, people, or structures. They are highly beneficial and feed on ants and other insects that fall into their traps. It is best to leave them alone. But it is interesting for kids, and adults too, to watch them make their pits and catch their prey. You can speed up the process by dropping an ant, or other small insect, or a dog or child, in their pit. Just kidding. I would never sacrifice my dog. Flatfish One of the most amazing animals that go through a metamorphosis is a flatfish. These fish start as normal-looking fish with the eyes on both sides of their head. As they grow, one eye migrates from its original position to meet up with the other eye on the side of its body. That just gives me a headache thinking about it. Flatfish is a catch-all name for more than 700 different species of fish. The group includes flounder, halibut, sole, and more. It's important to note that half the time these names don't follow any kind of scientific classification. Pretty much all our favorite flatfish are technically flounder, but most of them go by another name. Flatfish spend their lives lying on the seafloor waiting for a meal to swim their way. Because of this, they're perfectly designed for a life on the bottom. Their dabbled skin changes color to match their surroundings and their white underside makes them invisible from below if they ever leave their muddy home. Every summer, there's a snowfall in the sea. Instead of drifting down, it drifts up. And rather than flakes of ice, it is made of innumerable diaphanous eggs that rise from the bottom of the ocean to the surface. There, they hatch into baby flatfish, each no larger than a pinhead. For the first few weeks of life, they look and act like a typical fish fry, swimming upright through sun dappled waters darting after plankton. Soon enough, though, these young flatfish lose all semblance of normalcy during one of the most difficult puberties of any animal on the planet. You think pimples and prom are awkward? Please. Imagine one of your eyes traveling all the way around the back of your head. I'll never complain about having braces again. As a larval flatfish begins its passage into adulthood, it does not merely experience uneven growth spurts and mood swings, rather it changes from acute symmetrical little fish into a total anatomical disaster, like some unrecognizable object evolution made from clay in preschool and gleefully brought home to its parents who kept it for sentimental value at the same period in our lives when the slightest blemish seems like a calamity. The flatfish is preparing to lose half of its face. The bones in its skull bend and shift as one eye forces its way to the opposite side of the head. Its whole body begins to tip over, so it has to swim at an angle. One of its flanks turns a sickly pallor, and the other becomes colorfully flecked, matching the speckled sand on the seafloor. Eventually, when it is large enough, the transformed flatfish sinks and settles on its newly blind side. Now it is a young adult bottom feeder with two eyes on the same side of its head, a contorted mouth, and one fin squashed against the sand. It will spend the rest of its life this way. Mayflies Mayflies are found all over the world, but they mostly live in freshwater bodies of water like rivers and lakes. The adult portion of their lives only lasts 48 hours, which makes them short-lived compared to other insects. They only spend a few hours as adults before they mate and die. Mayflies start out their lives in the water where they live for about two years. These young insects are called nymphs. They have gills that help them breathe underwater and spend most of their time feeding on plants and small animals that live under rocks at the bottom of rivers. When a mayfly is ready to become an adult, it will climb out of the water and molt or shed its outer layer so that it can grow. Once the process is complete, they leave the water for good. They spend just two days on land before mating with other adults and then die. That seems unfair. Can a mayfly just say, I'm not ready to adult today? Besides, I'd rather be a nymph than a fly any day. I will post photos of these creatures on the Facebook page. And please, watch out for giant dirt pits in your yard. You can't tell me that ant lions only eat ants. <laughs>
0: You are listening to Afterwards Paranormal, the podcast that offers you dark tales from literature, lore, and you, the listener. If you are interested in contributing stories to the show, please stay tuned after the story for details.
1: Reminded me of something. I'd like to ask you for a favor. If you like this podcast and you know someone else who would like this podcast, please share it with them. We want our library patron numbers to grow and grow. Thank you. American author Ray Bradbury. It's best known for his highly imaginative short stories and novels that blend a poetic style, nostalgia for childhood, social criticism, and an awareness of the hazards of runaway technology. His most famous works are Fahrenheit 451, Dandelion Wine, and The Martian Chronicles. He is one of my favorite authors and has been featured previously on the podcast. And now, Fever Dream by Ray Bradbury. They put him between fresh, clean laundered sheets and there was always a newly squeezed glass of thick orange juice on the table under the dim pink lamp. All Charles had to do was call and Mom or Dad would stick their heads into his room to see how sick he was. The acoustics in their room were fine. You could hear the toilet gargling his porcelain throat of mornings. You could hear rain tap on the roof or sly mice run in the secret walls. If you were alert, sickness wasn't too bad. was fifteen, Charles was. It was mid-September, with the land beginning to burn with autumn. He lay in the bed for three days before the terror overtook him. His hand began to change, his right hand. He looked at it, and it was hot and sweating there on the counterpane, alone. It fluttered, it moved a bit, then it lay there, changing color. That afternoon, The doctor came again and tapped his thin chest like a little drum. How are you? asked the doctor, smiling. I know. Don't tell me. My cold is fine, doctor, but I feel lousy. (laughs) He laughed at his own oft-repeated joke. Charles lay there, and for him that terrible and ancient jest was becoming a reality. The joke fixed itself in his mind. His mind torched and drew away from it in pale terror. The doctor did not know how cruel he was with his jokes. "'Doctor,' whispered Charles, lying flat and colorless, "'my hand. It doesn't belong to me any more. "'This morning it changed into something else. "'I want you to change it back, doctor. Doctor!' The doctor showed his teeth and patted his hand. "'It looks fine to me, son. You just had a little fever dream.' "'But it changed, doctor. Oh, doctor!' cried Charles, pitifully holding up his paled, wild hand. "'It did!' The doctor winked. "'I'll give you a pink pill for that.' He popped a tablet onto Charles' tongue. "'Swallow. Will it make my hand change back and become me again? Yes, yes.' The house was silent when the doctor drove off down the road in his carriage under the quiet blue September sky. A clock ticked far below in the kitchen world. Charles lay looking at his hand. It did not change back. It was still something else. The wind blew outside. Leaves fell against the cool window. At four o'clock, his other hand changed. It seemed almost to come to a fever, a chemical, a virus. It pulsed and shifted cell by cell. It beat like a warm heart. The fingernails turned blue and then red. It took about an hour for it to change, and when it was finished, it looked just like an ordinary hand. But it was not ordinary. It was no longer him anymore. He lay in fascinated horror and then fell into an exhausted sleep. Mother brought the soup up at six. He wouldn't touch it. I haven't any hands, he said, eyes shut. Your hands are perfectly good, said Mother. No, he wailed. My hands are gone. I feel like I have stumps. Oh, mamma, mamma, hold me, hold me. I'm scared. She had to feed him herself. Mamma, he said, get the doctor, please. Again, I'm so sick. The doctor will be here tonight at eight, she said and went out. At seven, with the night dark and close around the house, Charles was sitting up in bed when he felt the thing happening first to one leg and then the other. Mamma, come quick, he screamed. But when Mama came, the thing was no longer happening. When she went downstairs, he simply lay without fighting as his legs beat and beat, grew warm, red-hot, and the room filled with the warmth of his feverish change. The glow crept up from his toes to his ankles and then to his knees. "'May I come in?' the doctor smiled in the doorway. "'Doctor!' cried Charles. "'Hurry! Take off my blankets!' The doctor lifted the blankets tolerantly. "'There you are, whole and healthy!' Sweating, though. A little fever. I told you not to move around, bad boy. He pinched the moist pink cheek. Did the pills help? Did your hand change back? No, no. Now it's my other hand and my legs. Well, well, I'll have to give you three more pills, one for each limb, eh, my little peach? laughed the doctor. Will they help me? Please, please. What have I got? A mild case of scarlet fever, complicated by a slight cold. Is it a germ that lives and has more little germs in me? Yes. Are you sure it's scarlet fever? You haven't taken any tests. I guess I know a certain fever when I see one, said the doctor, checking the boy's pulse with cool authority. Charles lay there, not speaking until the doctor was crisply packing his black kit. Then in the silent room, the boy's voice made a small, weak pattern, his eyes alight with remembrance. I I read a book once about petrified trees, wood turning to stone, about how trees fell and rotted and minerals got in and it built up and they looked just like trees, but they're not. They're stone. He stopped. In the quiet, warm room, his breath sounded. Well, asked the doctor. I've been thinking, said Charles after a time. Do germs ever get big? I mean, In biology class, they told us about one-celled animals, amoebas and things, and how millions of years ago they got together until there was a bunch, and then they made the first body. And more and more cells got together and got bigger, and then finally maybe there was a fish, and finally here we are. And all we are is a bunch of cells that decided to get together and help each other out. Isn't that right? Charles wet his feverish lips. What's this all about? The doctor bent over him. I've got to tell you this, doctor. Oh, I've got to, he cried. What would happen? Oh, just pretend. Please pretend that just like in the old days, a lot of microbes got together and wanted to make a bunch and reproduced and made more. His white hands were on his chest now, crawling towards his throat. And they decided to take over a person, cried Charles. Take over a person? Yes, become a person. Me, my hands, my feet. What if a disease somehow knew how to kill a person and yet live after him? He screamed. His hands were on his neck. The doctor moved forward, shouting. At nine o'clock, the doctor was escorted out to his carriage by the mother and father, who handed him up his bag. They conversed in the cool night wind for a few minutes. "'Just be sure his hands are kept strapped to his legs,' said the doctor. "'I don't want him hurting himself.' "'Will he be all right, doctor?' The mother held on to his arm a moment. He patted her shoulder. Haven't I been your family physician for thirty years? It's the fever. He imagines things. But those bruises on his throat. He almost choked himself. Just you keep him strapped. He'll be all right in the morning. The horse and carriage moved off down the dark September road. At three in the morning, Charles was still awake in his small black room. The bed was damp under his head and his back. He was very warm. Now he no longer had any arms or legs, and his body was beginning to change. He did not move on the bed, but looked at the vast blank ceiling spaces with insane concentration. For a while he had screamed and thrashed, but now he was weak and hoarse from it, and his mother had gotten up a number of times to soothe his brow with a wet towel. Now he was silent, his hands strapped to his legs. He felt the walls of his body change, the organs shift, the lungs catch fire like burning bellows of pure alcohol. The room was lighted up as with the flickerings of a hearthplace. Now he had no body. It was all gone. It was under him, but it was filled with a vast pulse of some burning lethargic drug. It was as if a guillotine had neatly lopped off his head, and his head lay shining on a midnight pillow while his body below, still alive, belonged to someone else. The disease had eaten his body, and from the eating had reproduced itself in feverish duplicate. There were the little hand hairs, and the fingernails, and the scars, and the toenails, and the tiny mole on his right hip, all done again in perfect fashion. "'I am dead. I have been killed, and yet I live.' My body is dead. It is all disease and nobody will know. I will walk around and it will not be me. It will be something else. It will be something all bad, all evil, so big and so evil it's hard to understand or think about. Something that will buy shoes and drink water and get married someday, maybe, and do more evil in the world than has ever been done. Now the warmth was stealing up his neck into his cheeks like hot wine. His lips burned, his eyelids like leaves caught fire. His nostrils breathed out blue flame, faintly, faintly. This will be all, he thought. It'll take my head and my brain and fix each eye and every tooth and all the marks in my brain and every hair and every wrinkle in my ears, and there'll be nothing left of me. He felt his brain fill with a boiling mercury. He felt his left eye clenched in upon itself and like a snail, withdraw, shift. He was blind in his left eye. It no longer belonged to him. It was enemy territory. His tongue was gone, cut out. His left cheek was numbed, lost. His left ear stopped hearing. It belonged to someone else now. This thing that was being born, this mineral thing replacing the wooden log, this disease-replacing healthy animal cell. He tried to scream, and he was able to scream loud and high and sharply in the room. Just as his brain flooded down, his right eye and right ear were cut out. He was blind and deaf, all fire, all terror, all panic, all death. His scream stopped before his mother ran through the door to his side. It was a good, clear morning, with a brisk wind that helped carry the doctor, horse, and carriage along the road to halt before the house. In the window above, the boy stood, fully dressed. He did not wave when the doctor waved and called, "'What's this? Up? My God!' The doctor almost ran upstairs. He came gasping into the bedroom. "'What are you doing out of bed?' he demanded of the boy. He tapped his thin chest, took his pulse and temperature— absolutely amazing, normal, normal, by God. I shall never be sick again in my life, declared the boy quietly, standing there, looking out the wide window. Never. I hope not. Why, you're looking fine, Charles. Doctor? Yes, Charles? Can I go to school now? Tomorrow will be time enough. You sound positively eager. I am. "'I like school. All the kids. "'I want to play with them and wrestle with them and spit on them "'and play with the girls' pigtails and shake the teachers' hands "'and rub my hands on all the cloaks in the cloakroom. "'And I want to grow up and travel and shake hands with people all over the world "'and be married and have lots of children and go to libraries and handle books "'and all of that I want to,' said the boy, looking off into the September morning.' What's the name you called me? What? The doctor puzzled. I called you nothing but Charles. It's better than no name at all, I guess. Charles shrugged. I'm glad you want to go back to school, said the doctor. I really anticipate it, smiled the boy. Thank you for your help, doctor. Shake hands? Glad to. They shook hands gravely, and the clear wind blew through the open window. They shook hands for almost a minute, Charles smiling up at the old man and thanking him. Laughing, Charles raced him downstairs and out to his carriage, where his father and mother joined him for the happy farewell. And while the doctor was telling his parents that Charles was fit as a fiddle, the boy reached over with his left hand and barely touched a number of red ants that were racing wildly about the floorboard of the carriage. From the corners of his shining eyes, while Dad joked with the doctor, Charles saw the ants hesitate, quiver, and lie still on the floorboard. They were dead. Goodbye, the doctor drove off. School days, school days, dear old golden rule days, sang Charles running back to the house. His parents beamed. It's good to have him well again. He's so looking forward to school. Charles condescended to giving them both a big hug, and kiss. "'I love you,' he said." He's got the whole world in his hands, he's got the whole wide world, in his hands he's got the whole world, in his hands he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got my brothers and my sisters. In his hands, he's got my brothers and my sisters. In his hands, he's got my brothers and my sisters. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. We as humans have had our share of infectious diseases. COVID, yellow fever, the plague, typhoid, the list goes on. We seem to have eradicated them or at least tamed them, But this one in the story, I don't know. Let's just hope there's a vaccine for that, if it ever comes along. Thank you so much for listening to Afterwards Paranormal. I've been your host, Shelby. And as always, I leave the last words for you.
0: Thank you for listening to Afterwards Paranormal podcast. Please join us on Patreon and Facebook. You can listen to Afterwards Paranormal on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Contact us at afterwardsstories at gmail.com. And remember, the need to be heard never dies.